Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. beautiful visionaries. This is Lorna Liana here. Before we hop into our interview with Rick Doblin, founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, who will be speaking to us about the medical benefits of psychedelics for PTSD and end-of-life therapy, I do want to apologize for the slight lapse in programming as I have changed countries. For those of you who are just getting to know me, I am a digital nomad and I run an internet marketing agency as a location-independent entrepreneur. For the past four years, I've lived out of three bags and run my business from five countries. So last week, I left Nevada City, California and flew to Barcelona, Spain to attend a conference on internet business specifically for digital nomads. Many of my friends who I know from Thailand and elsewhere were baffled that I chose a relatively unexotic place to be based for the last few months until I explained to them that Nevada City is the Napa Valley of Weed. There, the climate is optimal for outdoor marijuana cultivation, and I do love living among cash-rich cannabis business owners. Barcelona is the most wonderful place to walk around high, and there are over a hundred private cannabis clubs in the city, thanks to the amnesty given to them by Barcelona's first female mayor. I am so sad that the most swanky of the cannabis clubs got shut down before the amnesty. It looked like a Hotel W lounge, and they had their own resident DJs, film screenings, food from the best restaurants in Barcelona on Saturdays, and in addition to weed, they offered coffee, tea, smoothies, beer, wine, and champagne. To get an idea of what we're all missing out on, go to entheonation.com slash 18 and check out the video tour on what a totally dope place this was, pun intended. You can also find a link to some of the other top cannabis clubs in Barcelona in case you find your way over here. There is a club called Choco that looks like a very compelling place to turn into my alternative office. Another wonderful thing about Spain is that personal drug use is decriminalized. You are fine if you are consuming whatever illicit drug you want to consume within the privacy of your own home. This is because the Spanish government prefers to cure addicts rather than incarcerate them, which is a much better use of taxpayer money, while liberating more law enforcement resources to focus on things like violent crimes. Now, Portugal decriminalized all drug use, crack, heroin, weed, LSD, you name it, in 2001. After many years of waging a fierce war on drugs, Portugal decided to flip its strategy entirely. It decriminalized them all. If someone is found in the possession of less than a 10-day supply of anything from marijuana to heroin, he or she is sent to a three-person commission for the dissuasion of drug addiction, typically made up of a lawyer, a doctor, and a social worker. 
The commission recommends treatment or delivers a minor fine. Otherwise, the person is sent off without any penalty. A vast majority of the time, there is no penalty. Over 15 years after decriminalization, Portugal has not been run into the ground by a nation of drug addicts. In fact, drug use and drug-induced deaths have declined over the years. Now contrast this approach with the United States policy of mandatory minimum prison sentences of 10 years for the possession of Schedule One drugs. Could you imagine if Steve Jobs got 10 years of jail time for doing LSD? There would be no Apple, Matt Groening, the cartoonist, no Simpsons. In fact, some of these famous people attribute their breakthrough discoveries to their use of mind-expanding substances. Visit the show notes for a list of famous people who made fantastic contributions to our world that you didn't know did LSD. Hopefully, the path to decriminalization of psychedelics will start with legal therapeutic access through the hard work of organizations like MAPS. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rick Doblin, and I also want to invite you to check out our YouTube channel where you can find even more resources about psychedelic science, cannabis consciousness, modern shamanism, and field reports from the jungle. Just go to youtube.com/entheonation. If you would like to receive a free transcript of this episode, it is super easy. Simply text entheonation. That is E N T H E O N A T I O N. To the number four four two two two. Just reply to the SMS with your best email to get access to premium content that's only available to bona fide citizens of Entheo Nation. If you like this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review the show in iTunes, as this will increase Entheo Nation's visibility in the iTunes marketplace and help get this life-changing information out to the people who need it. Now on to the show. Hello, powerful visionaries of Entheo Nation. This is Lorna Liana, your host today, and we are here with a researcher in the world of、uh, psychedelics and legalization. His name is Rick Doblin, and he's the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS. He received his doctorate in public policy from from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medical uses of psychedelics in marijuana. Rick studied with Dr. Stanislav Grof and was one of the first to be certified as a holotropic breathwork practitioner. His professional goal is to become a legalized,、um, a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. So, welcome to the show today, Rick. I'd love to hear more about the work that you do through Maps. Would you share that with us, please? Yeah, thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here with you and all the people that are participating here. Maps is basically a nonprofit. Psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company, and our goals is to develop these drugs into federally legal, FDA approved, and European Medicines Agency approved prescription medications. At the same time, we have a public education mission, so we have a lot of educational work that we do, and we also are trying to facilitate the mainstreaming of these drugs, not just for medical purposes, but for other purposes. And one of the ways that we do that is through envisioning a Post-prohibition world and looking at how we can do psychedelic harm reduction.
production. And we're looking at festivals like uh, Boom Festival in Portugal, Burning Man, Africa Burn, Envision in Costa Rica. I'll be um, there. Oh, you're going to go to Envision? Great. Well, yep. we're going to have a maps group there. Awesome. The um, sanctuary space so that we try to provide uh, trained therapists, sometimes physicians, others to facilitate when people get into difficult experiences and show that it, difficult is not the same as bad. And if you can recognize that things come up and you need to work through them, then people often in a short period of time can go back to the party, whereas otherwise they might have been arrested or taken off to uh, an emergency room and tranquil. Or oh, gosh. The ultimate buzzkill right there. Yeah, so we're trying to facilitate the transition through difficult experiences and also in our culture at large to do that. And then we also look at areas where science is being blocked by political reasons. And right now, ironically, we're, it's easier to do research with LSD than with marijuana. And wow. so we do a lot of work with medical marijuana research and the federal obstructions of and barriers to research. We recently got a $2 million grant from the state of Colorado for a marijuana PTSD study. We're also going to be working with some veterans, U.S. veterans, who go down to Peru for ayahuasca to help them deal with their post-traumatic stress disorder. And we're primarily doing work with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. So MAPS is um, both pharmaceutical drug research, public education, and then some political work to open the door to scientific research. Wow, that's really interesting, the work that you're doing. And so I want to just dive into different aspects of this, starting with the festival work that you do. So, you know, I remember hearing about the sanctuary years ago and I thought it was just utterly cool and like, you know, very needed to have a safe space for people that were just having a way that were, you know, having a visionary experience in an environment like the playa where yeah. it can be very dehydrating, very confusing and then and hot. And so, you know, to be able to find a place to go to where you can just chill out and drink water and rehydrate yourself and not have to deal with the emergency services and, you know, like people rushing you like, you know, on a stretcher or, you know, some ambulance and when really just all you need is like shade and water. Um, I thought that was an amazing thing. So hearing about the sanctuary and the fact that you work with people who are trained and, yeah. you know, who are therapists is, uh, is wonderful. So tell me more about these, these services that you provide in these festival environments. How does it work? And, uh, and what are you typically dealing with and how do you deal with them? <laughs> well, in addition to food and water or shade and water, people need to feel safe. That's the fundamental thing. So what we're finding, unfortunately, is the rise of sort of rave culture scared our culture. And then uh, Vice President Biden was a senator in around 2000 and passed a bill that criminalized harm reduction efforts. It was called the Rave Act, Reducing America's Vulnerability to Ecstasy. And what had happened earlier before during the crack epidemic is that laws have been passed that criminalize people that ran abandoned buildings that owned them or that rented out houses where people would go to do crack and it criminalized the landlord. And so that same statute idea, what it did was it so that if people offered harm reduction services, that meant that they were aware those were being used in their facilities and then they could be prosecuted for that. So it had a perverse effect in that it made drug use more risky rather than less risky. So that 
the environment. So what we try to do is look internationally. And so we've worked in Portugal at the Boom Festival, which is the world's example of psychedelic harm reduction. So uh, there's police on the fest. And we've worked at Burning Man and Africa Burn and Envision and other festivals around the world. And so the, the essence of what we do is to provide places where therapists, uh, physicians, people who are volunteers, but in these areas will provide safe support for people to go through challenging emotional issues. We screen them for physical issues, anything physical, they go off to the medical staff. And so we've got four basic principles of how we operate. And the first is to create a safe space that need to feel protected. And that's similar to what we do in the therapeutic world. People in our research, people know that they're safe, that they can explore inner worlds, that they're protected from intrusion, that they don't have to respond to the phone or the door, that no one can abuse them or steal their stuff or anything like that. They can relax, they can go inner and they can deal with what's working with them. Then the next basic principle we call is uh, sitting, not guiding. And what that means is that the guide is the person's own unconscious. And that is the way that we do the therapy as well. So the other principle for us is that we are sitting, not guiding. And what that means is that sometimes when people come to us in these festivals, most of the time, you've never seen them before. We're not their guide. That's a common word used in psychedelic uh, circles where you're guiding somebody or a shaman is your guide or something like that. So our view is that the person's unconscious is the guide, that their own inner healing intelligence is really the guide. And we have a non-directive approach. So we are sitting with people. We're helping facilitate them to deal with what's coming up, but that what we're following is their own inner guide. And that's really helpful to, because we often think that in a therapeutic situation, the therapist has to know the person's history. They have to spend all this time with them in order to be therapeutic. And we find that that's very helpful. The more knowledge there is about the person that you're with, the better. But at the same time, you can be therapeutic and support people through difficult experiences without ever having met them before because the non-directive approach and letting them be the guide with what they're and you offer questions you offer support you sometimes you know can give insights what it seems like to you but you're a safe supportive presence for them to do the work and it's also in some ways i make a distinction between certain kinds of shamanism where the classic example is where the shaman takes the drug and heals you like a doctor heals you and this is the opposite of that where the power dynamics there are the the shaman is the one that's healing you. You're not healing yourself. And so we're saying that people heal themselves and that's the way that they become the most independent and the strongest and grow the most. And we do that by honoring the inner guide, the inner intelligence. We support that. We are sitting, not guiding. Okay. Then the third principle of the work that we do at festivals and the psychedelic harm reduction uh, we call is talk through, not talk down. Okay. And what that means is we guide people into the problems by guiding. I mean, ask them questions, draw their attention to, but it's still the guide is their own inner unconscious. But the idea here is that we're not saying to people, look, you've taken a drug, it's going to go away in a certain period of time. And so just think about happy things for as long as you can. And eventually, you know, it'll be all okay. Just, you you know, look, look at this beautiful flower or so that side of talking somebody down, but we talk them through and we're like, okay, what is bothering? Why are you, what are you scared of? Oh, I'm scared. I'm going to die. Well, what would happen if you, what makes you think you're dying? What does that feel like? Could that be interpreted as ego death rather than physical death? Because we also have medical staff to screen them to make sure they're not actually dying. (laughs) 
So it's <laughs> key. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a symbolic ego death. And so it's the death rebirth process that we encourage people to think in that kind of metaphor. Talk through, not talk down. And then the fourth principle is that difficult is not the same as bad. And I think that's really important for people actually a lot of times at festivals where they've gone to have good time and they've taken these drugs and they're with their friends and they're in a party setting and then something gets difficult. They remember a past trauma or they feel lonely or they feel isolated or lost or something starts spiraling them down into this sort of negative emotions and they think, okay, this is now a bad trip. I got to get out of it. And again, we say this is difficult, but it's valuable. It's don't run away from it. There's something that you can learn from it. This is really important. Honor whatever is happening. And that's actually sort of mindfulness meditation is that you watch what's happening. You don't try to push it away. You don't try to get attached to it, but that you honor whatever is coming up and you let it flow through you. And so we're saying if something difficult is coming up, there's a good chance that there's something there for you to learn and that don't shut it down by deciding that it's a bad trip. Think about it as a difficult experience. Like you could even say like exercise is difficult, but you grow stronger from it. And so we help reframe people's perception that this is something that they have to resist. It's a bad trip that they have to resist. And we say the way out is through, you know, and this is something that your psyche is bringing to your consciousness for healing purposes, for you to grow, for you to learn, and you're safe. And then we usually have, we try to have a male-female team. We try to have heavily staffed um, uh, sanctuary centers, or we call it the Zendo Project, and at Burning Man, um, different the uh, Africa Burn is sanctuary project, different names in different places. Cosmic Care is what it's called at Boom Festival, and we try to say that if we can have a male female team, because people will feel the safest in that way, and also that the people who are with them have six eight hour shifts, and so we can be with people for hours and hours and hours. People can actually spend days in these centers. While they go through stuff, they fall asleep, they feel better, then they go off party. So there's a window of safety that extends for days sometimes where people get support. Now, people would go off their shift and other people would come to help them. But that's the basic idea. And so what we're trying to show is that if we can overcome the criminalization of these harm reduction efforts, that a post-prohibition world is not going to end drug problems, particularly when we talk about powerful psychedelics, that a post-prohibition world needs to have ways in which people are supported when problems arise. And often, even in the therapy, what we notice is that it's not so much about the experience, although it is very much about that, but it's about the integration. What happens after you've had the experience? Let's say you've had the greatest insights, but how do you put it into practice in your life? How do you reinforce what happened in this non-ordinary state of consciousness to make it so that it makes a fundamental change in your ordinary state of consciousness? And that requires work, that requires maturity, that requires integration process. And we don't often have that opportunity when people come at festivals, but in a therapeutic setting and sometimes even in festivals, you try to keep in touch with people because it's about what you bring back from these experiences more so than the short term, what happens when you're there. Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. 
Okay, that's like, uh, that's really valuable work that you're doing because, you know, that is an area in the psychedelic world that is really kind of, you know, vastly lacking, which is yeah. that integrative uh, support system. And then also like, especially the harm reduction too, because I think it's because you're working with such powerful psychedelic substances, you're really opening your psyche up in ways that, you know, normally your ego has your internal world rather protected. And so by opening yourself up in such a way, especially in an environment that can be a little extreme or where there's a lot of stimulus, uh, the potential for emerging from that experience can even more traumatized uh, yeah. could be, uh, you know, could be quite high. So I'm really glad that you're doing this layer of work that's very needed. I'm curious yeah. to know about the other body of research you're doing around working with psychedelics and post-traumatic stress disorder, because they do seem very, you know, very aligned or linked in a certain way. Although in one case, we're dealing with kind of like situational, potential situational trauma and easing away of that, mitigating those traumas. And then in the other case, we're dealing with individuals that have been experiencing perhaps prolonged trauma in scenarios like war or with, you know, with abuse. So what have you seen? seen in terms of which psychedelic substances have you found to be the most effective in treating PTSD and do they work in different ways? Yes, that's a very good question. So I think what we're wanting to get to is the legitimation of psychedelic psychotherapy, where different psychedelics can be used at different times in a healing process. And they all have their different benefits and different challenges. Right now, because of the research, we're only able to research one thing at a time. But we are trying to develop an expertise in treating trauma. So we've got a series of studies that we've been doing over the last 10 years with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. We just got a $2 million grant from the state of Colorado to study marijuana for post-traumatic stress. We're also doing an observational study that's just in the design stage now of veterans who, from the U.S. who go down to Peru to take ayahuasca for post-traumatic stress disorder. So what we've found is that the essence of post-traumatic stress disorder is that people have been traumatized sometimes over an extended period of time, sometimes just once, and that for whatever reason, they can't get beyond it. They can't um, sort of integrate it into their lives and they can't sort of forget it so that it's more present all the time. Wherever they are, they are jumpy, they feel anxious, they withdraw, they are emotional numbing, they're hyperreactive. There's a whole series of intrusive behaviors that happen. So what we are looking at with MDMA, I think that I would say that both MDMA and ayahuasca are more in the direction of trying to help people get to the core of the issues and cure is a delicate word, but uh, durable remission of symptoms. Whereas marijuana is a reduction of symptoms, but it's a daily medication that people need to keep using. So it doesn't, it's more about uh, palliative care with marijuana, whereas MDMA or ayahuasca, or it could be psilocybin or LSD, are more about trying to get to a cure. But MDMA offers an advantage over ayahuasca, psilocybin, LSD in that it's more gentle and it has a more direct effect on reducing the fear response to um, emotional trauma. 
And we find that MDMA actually in some neuroscience studies has been shown to reduce the processing of the amygdala, the part of the brain where fear is processed, so that people can sort of recall traumatic experiences without feeling so fearful. And then MDMA also stimulates oxytocin and prolactin, which are hormones of nurturing, bonding with nursing mothers, that it connects people. It makes, it's the opposite, you could say, of this feeling of alienation and fear. It's the feeling of connection. And in fact, there's been a scientific paper by a Dr. Torsten Passy uh, comparing the post-orgasmic state to the MDMA state and finding a lot of hormonal similarities. And so I think in a way, that's uh, one of the best ways to think about MDMA as like the post-orgasmic state. It's like you're there, you're not striving, you're feeling connected, you're feeling warm, you're feeling loving. And that is the peaceful state then that we help people go to look at their trauma from that grounding in the peacefulness. And so our basic approach with MDMA is a three-month therapy process where there's weekly non-drug psychotherapy for about three weeks. Then to prepare people to build a therapeutic alliance, we have male-female co-therapist teams. Then people have a day-long MDMA experience, eight hours from 10 in the morning till six at night, usually around 100, 125 milligrams a kilogram. And then after two hours or so, there's a supplemental dose of half the initial dose to prolong this therapeutic plateau. Um, Then people spend the night in the treatment center to reflect, to give themselves time. MDMAs can be exhausting for people, so you need to rest afterwards. And then there's integrative psychotherapy for several hours the next day. Then people go home and we call them every day on the phone for a week, checking in and a little bit how they're integrating. And then they come back for weekly non-drug psychotherapy for about a month and integrating what happened and preparing for the next experience. And then we repeat that cycle three times. So they get three MDMA experiences a month apart, each a month apart. And then we have several weeks of non-drug psychotherapy. And then we check them at two months and one year. Or in our first study, since it took a long time to do, we check people an average of three and a half years. And that's our basic model. And we're trying to help it so that people don't need any drugs after it. Marijuana is a different model. Marijuana is daily use of marijuana at night to help people not have nightmares, to focus them more on the present, to build a little bit of a positive mood. Some people, marijuana makes more anxious. So again, it's not going to work for everybody, but it does, it's a palliative treatment. Ayahuasca is more about helping people have kind of this unit of spiritual experience. And at the same time, it also helps people work through issues of their biography, things that have happened to them in their lives. So ideally, I would say in a future uh, situation, maybe 10 years from now, legally, we would probably start people who had trauma with MDMA, give them a couple experiences for how you can deal with uh, fearful things in a, from a safe perspective. Then we would switch to something like ayahuasca or MDMA or, or LSD or psilocybin, I mean, for more of this sort of transcendence of the ego, more of this spiritual, spiritual unit of experience. And then we would t- sort of finish up with more MDMA to help integrate and ground. And then during this period, people could use marijuana if they wanted to, but not during the treatment, acute treatment periods, because we want actually the symptoms to increase beforehand so that they're closer to the surface so that when we do the therapy so we require people to stop all their psychiatric medications that they're on to taper off of them actually people do get worse sometimes in terms of their symptoms but at the same time people start getting hope for this treatment so sometimes they get in a position and they're so relieved to be off the psychiatric medications which usually just tranquilize dampen don't really solve the problems Um, they're meant to be daily medications they're meant to be major problems 
profit centers for the pharmaceutical industry, but they're not really ideal for treatment of trauma. So that's sort of the general overview of how it is that we are trying to treat trauma. We think that by the summer of 2015, we'll have treated about 90 people for post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA. It will cost us about $4 million we will have spent to that point. It's really expensive to do this research. We anticipate that we're going to need to treat around 400 more at a cost of about 18 million. So we're looking for donors to MAPS. It's all tax deductible, maps.org. And we are anticipating by 2021 that we'll have all the research available for a presentation to the European Medicines Agency and the FDA to make MDMA into a prescription medicine. And it will then only be available by prescription by trained therapists, probably in special treatment centers like kidney dialysis or methadone centers where you go to a special place that's really set up for this with people that are trained in its use. And the model for us there is the hospice center. So in the 60s, people were scared of dying. Birth was medicalized. Women were tranquilized. Yoga was weird. You know, meditation was a weird import. And so in 1974 was the first hospice center where people weren't sort of uh, medicated out of awareness as they died, but were helped to have kind of a more conscious death. And by 2004, 30 years later, there was over 3,500 hospices in pretty much every a city of a certain size in America. And that's what we anticipate will happen with psychedelic treatments centers that, you know, starting in 2021, we'll have these legal medicines, MDMA, and probably also psilocybin through the Hefter group, and we'll set up these psychedelic clinics, and they will proliferate gradually so that uh, maybe 30, 35 years from now, we will have a fully mainstream psychedelic psychotherapy options, and we'll have gone beyond prohibition. People will have these experiences uh, legally for therapy, for personal growth, for uh, religious inspiration, for celebrations at festivals where we'll have harm reduction into place. And I think that'll be a key towards really helping our species get more spiritual and more able to survive, less able to demonize the others, more sense of we're all in it together. And I I think that psychedelics and the mainstreaming of psychedelics can play a major role in the uh, transformation of the human psyche and the survival of the human species. Wow. I commend you on this tremendous work that you've done. It sounds like uh, it was a very prolonged battle to get your MGMA research uh, this far. So I really do hope that we find yourselves getting closer to that vision that you just shared with us. I would love to ask you to share a little bit about what you've seen with the use of psilocybin end of life work. Yeah, it's a little bit harder for me to speak about that because that's MAPS is not funding that research. That's funded by the Hefter Research Institute. And so I would just encourage you to interview some of the people from Hefter to talk about that. We are, however, we just finished a study with LSD mm. for end-of-life work. So LSD, of there's a psychedelic renaissance right now. There's more research with psychedelics than at any time in the last 40 years. And the classic psychedelic boogeyman is LSD. And so the research with LSD was the last of the psychedelic to really get approved for research. And the way we were able to do that, excuse me, was in Switzerland with uh, people that were anxious about a life-threatening illness. And so that's pretty similar to the psilocybin work, the work with LSD for end of life. And what I'm most proud of is that in that study of 12 people, 11 of the 12 had never done LSD before. So what we're showing is that this drug, which sort of dissolves the ego, brings things to the surface, helps people deal with their fears, and then also can help people 
have this spiritual sense of connection from which they can draw strength. It gives them a certain transcendence of time and space sometimes, the sense of, you know, this enormous billions and billions of years of the sweep of human history. So people can relax about dying. They see that it's a natural process, that there would be no life without death, that it's not something to be feared. It's something to be appreciated, that, that it makes you appreciate life even more while you have it. It's even more precious. So that the work that we did with LSD was published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease. And we were able to demonstrate that in people who had not come from the psychedelic culture, who were just facing life-threatening challenges and were anxious about it, that through LSD-assisted psychotherapy, they were able to come to a better appreciation of the life that they did have left and that their anxiety and depression would go down. And we're about to start a study in uh, San Anselmo, California, north of San Francisco, with MDMA for people with life-threatening illnesses with anxiety. And I think that our culture in general, people are more scared of dying than they are of drugs. So <laughs> if we can you know, use drugs wisely to help people with the death process, then the dying process, that will be a big doorway into the culture. And I think that is what's happening. And so working with PTSD, working with uh, end of life, and then the third main area is treating addiction with psychedelics. So we've done work with uh, researching Ibogaine and ayahuasca and the treatment of addiction. So I think that Bill W. started AA, had an LSD experience in the 50s, and he thought that that could be really helpful in helping people overcome alcoholism. And he's written about it in the book, Pass It On. He previously was sober, but then he tried LSD and found that it could be even more helpful. So I think the idea with people struggling with addiction, a lot of times it's sort of interrupted spirituality. They feel isolated. They feel alone. They reject themselves. And if you can help people through psychedelics to look at what they've previously tried to deny, look at what they've suppressed, accept themselves, feel a spiritual connection. And then it's a way to show the culture that it's not the drugs that are good or bad in themselves, it's how they're used. And that that's really the fundamental flaw of prohibition is that it's invested certain properties. These are good drugs, they're legal. These are bad drugs, they're illegal. And it's it's about the relationship rather than the thing itself that really determines benefits or risk. And that that's what we really need to get our culture back to throw away prohibition and focus on these relationships. And I think with psychedelics and the treatment of addiction, that's a really obvious lesson in a way that if we can use drugs that are considered schedule one drugs of abuse to help people with drug abuse problems, people will start thinking, okay, it's how they're used that really matters. And then the fourth main area of research is really just psychedelic neuroscience how it is that we can learn about the brain, learn about consciousness by studying the brain under the influence of psychedelics and also psychedelic spirituality. So all of this is really helping me have confidence that over the next generation and and sooner in, in some ways that we will be able to mainstream psychedelics just in time because we desperately need it as a human species. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing with us your vision for a more visionary world and especially with the tapping into the power of uh, therapy and healing that psychedelics can offer us if used in the right ways. So uh, we're at the end of our interview. I'd love to leave with you a question that I love to ask visionaries. So Rick, would you mind sharing with us what was the most visionary or out of the world experience you've had and how did it affect you so that you were able to derive lasting wisdom from that experience? 
Okay, well, I uh, don't want to, um, I usually resist this idea of this was the one most best, but I'll just share one of a series of experiences that stands out. And this was under the influence of MDMA. I was camping out by myself uh, in California on the edge of the cliffs right by the ocean. I found a little spot that the uh, waves didn't come to. So I just had, and I did it at night. So with the vast uh, starry expanse and the ocean roaring in front of me and the mountain cliffs coming right behind me. And at one point I felt like I would just disappear into the universe. Like, uh, I, and it was a little bit scary. Like I was such a small little speck in this enormous universe. And, and then I started recognizing that for some reason I wasn't disappearing. And I started thinking that there was something woven into the structure of the universe that sort of kept me there. And I felt that that was gravity. And I felt that somehow or other then this gravity was like cradling me. It was like the arms of a woman. I was being cradled in the arms of gravity. And I felt this warmth and it was like this connection to love of a universal nature. And I was also trying to ponder that same night about the life of a monk. I, uh, Brother David Steindlerost is a Roman Catholic monk that I have a lot of respect for, learned a lot from. And I started wondering, why would somebody want a celibate life? And what is that like? And so during this experience of being cradled in the arms of gravity, it felt like a human. It felt like I was in a woman's arms. It felt like I was sort of personalizing the universe in a way. So it was like that transcendent universal love. And I've kept that feeling with me and I've never felt as lonely ever since then. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that experience with us. How can we best stay in touch with you, Rick? Well, maps.org, we have a uh, monthly email newsletter. And if you want to ask any questions of me personally, ask maps at maps.org and uh, staff will filter it and come to me if you have questions for me or any general questions. And of course, people could donate to MAPS and become a MAPS member. But if everybody just gives what they can, one week we got a donation of $250,000 from one person. And then we got a letter from a drug war prisoner that had eight stamps which was the extent of his worldly goods. And that was more of what he had than what the person who gave us the 250000 And so we'll all just work together and eventually we'll have a psychedelic culture. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. You have a beautiful day. Thank you, Lerda. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode of Entheo Nation, I'd be so honored if you'd take a moment to subscribe to our show on iTunes and give us your honest rating and review. Don't forget to mosey on over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash entheonation for more bonus content. If you'd like to revisit this episode in print, you can get access to our transcript library by texting E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, that's Entheonation, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email and never miss an episode. We're going to wrap things up with a track called Kura from my friend Ishelle Prisma Miao's new album, Full Spectrum Medicine. She just released this album and it is soothing medicine music for the soul. You can find it on her Bandcamp page, which we've linked to in the show notes at entheonation.com slash 18. Enjoy. Yo soy de la tierra. Yo soy de las Soy de Pachamama y yo vivo en mi corazón. Yo soy de la tierra, yo soy de las estrellas, yo soy de Pachamama y yo vivo en mi corazón. Son, 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 son. Ray.
raíces fuertes, raíces profundas, raíces y andrés en la Pachamama, raíces fuertes, raíces profundas, raíces y andrés en la Pachamama, abuelita, madrecita, cura, cura, abuelita, madrecita, cura mi corazón, abuelita, tada, Y 
este es una oración para los niños y este es una oración para los abuelos y este Para mi corazón, mi corazón, mi corazón, son, 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 son. Abuelita, madrecita, cura, cura. Abuelita, madrecita, cura mi corazón. Son, mi corazón, mi corazón, son, 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 son. 